So um, I've, I've been here for about 14 years, and over the years I've received what I would call um, some pastor gifts. And, and a pastor gift, if you're going, what is a pastor gift? It's sometimes just like a small little token of appreciation for kind of what we do here. Um, but years ago, there was... Um, this young woman who just kind of liked to give me gifts every once in a while, and they were always kind of interesting gifts. Uh, there was one time uh, she, she went, I don't know where she got it because I'd never seen anything like this before, but it was a, a print of Jesus, um, and it was just like the way his eyes were um, were just kind of creepy. It was just like this image of him, and it was not one I'd ever seen uh, before. And I, I tried to have that in my office for a little while because, like, I'm appreciating the art. But it was just like Jesus was, was like, staring me down as I was working. So eventually that had to kind of go to the closet, and eventually it found its way uh, to Mission Mart, and maybe it's in somebody's home on a wall somewhere, and he's staring them down there. Uh, another time, somebody got me this beautiful leather wallet, and it was, it was a really nice wallet, but it had this metal plate on the front of it, and it was like, the, the metal plate was, was a good size, and it had this verse about money, and I, I tried to use it for a little while, but it was like actually hurting my back with that metal plate in there, so that kind of ha had to go. But every once in a while, you get these kind of different gifts, and a lot of them are kind of like, there, there's a verse on it, or a religious symbol, and like, obviously, he's a pastor, so he's going to want that. Everything he owns must have religious sim symbols or a verse on it. Um, but one time, somebody gave me a day planner, and it had Jeremiah 29.11 on the front of it. And if you're a Christian, if you've been one for a while, you probably have encountered this verse because this is a verse we Christians, we love to like put it on coffee mugs and on bookmarks and throw that one up on social media because it makes us feel good. Like Jeremiah 29.11, it's the one that says this, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, we love this verse because we read it and we go, my life is going to be awesome because look, God's got plans for me and obviously all God's plans are going to be awesome for me. That if I take my Jeremiah 29, 11 day planner and I lay it down against the, the plans of God, all the appointments and, and all the plans, they're going to line up. That what I want, God's obviously going to be um, planning for me. That my hopes, my visions, my dreams, all those things will, will come true because God's God's got good plans for me, right? But the context in which that verse is given is so different than what a lot of us assume. Like God gives this promise in Jeremiah to Israel, but it's not when Israel's going through like some really good times and, and things are, are problem-free for Israel. It's actually this time when uh, Israel's captive in Babylon. They are exiles in a place that is not their home. And so God comes along, he's like, but I've got a plan but it's vastly different than the plans Israel would have. Because like, if Israel's going to write the script, Israel's going to be like, okay, you're going to do one of those powerful things that we've heard you do uh, for our people in the past. You're going to show Babylon who's boss. We're going to go back home. Things are going to be great. We'll live happily ever after. And it's not going to go so well for Babylon, is it? And that's how Israel would write the script. But here's what God says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. 
Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. And so God comes along, he's like, I've I've got plans for you, uh, plans for your future. But he comes along and then he says, you know what? I'm going to leave you in exile. I'm not going to bring you out. I'm not going to relieve your suffering right away. And so he's he's saying, like, you're going to stay there. He's telling them, like, make a life for yourselves. Get, get, get comfortable because you're going to be here for quite a while, longer than you might expect. And th- this kind of seems odd because God is saying to Israel, I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city you are exiles in. Don't, don't despise this city. Pray for it. And so God's plan is that Israel, his people, would live among those who don't believe the same things they do. And yet they're going to be a blessing to those people there. And so for, for us as the church, kind of living in this, we, we've been talking about this for like the last month or so, that it's an interesting cultural moment that we find ourselves living in and things are starting to get a little bit, bit more uncomfortable and, and we're seeing things trend in a way that if you're a Christian, you might kind of go like, I'm not super comfortable with this, it's making me a little anxious. I think God's message to, to Israel in Babylon is the same message that he has for the church today, that rather than hating our culture, God wants us to pursue its well-being. But here's the thing, if we're not intentional in doing that, what we're going to do is we're going to be defensive and we're going to be reactive and have oppositional positions. Like there's a, a notorious church in Kansas, and I use that term church kind of lightly um, when, I, when I use it, and it's known for its use of inflammatory hate speech against the LGBTQ2 uh, plus community, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, atheists, Muslims, Jewish people, and U.S. soldiers and politicians. So it's kind of like if you don't attend their church, they don't really care for you that much. And they let you, you know that they don't care for it because it conducts protests at military funerals and public events. And in these protests and these demonstrations, they're stomping on the U.S. flag and they're holding signs that say some things like, thank God for dead soldiers. Now, again, this is, this is, this is a church. And so imagine they're doing their demonstration and, and they're, they're saying these things and then somebody's driving by. Like, do you think they're going to like slow down? They see them doing this and these signs and go like stop and go like roll down the window. It's like... What must I do to be saved? Like, this, this is so convicting. Nobody sees an angry, bitter, fist-shaking Christian and goes, like, whatever you've got, I want that for myself. Like, that, that's not how it works. Now, Jesus, he gives his, his disciples the great commission, kind of his last command before he ascends uh, back to his father's side. And it's this command to seek the well-being of the culture or seek the well-being of those who make up the culture that we find ourselves living in. And so in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, uh, it says, Jesus came near and said to them. So he's speaking to his disciples here. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what, what Jesus is doing there, he's, he's speaking to his disciples, but when he's speaking to his disciples, he's, he's also speaking to us in this moment, that the disciples that are here 2,000 years later, and he's saying, every one of you is to live on mission. Now, in this mission, some of you are going to go to the ends of the earth, but some of you are going to stay. But whether you go or whether you stay, your mission is the same thing. 
that you are to share the gospel, make disciples, live as salt and light in order to help seek and save the lost. And so if you, like, if I go, who, do you consider yourself a Christian? This is, this is what Jesus would be saying to you, that, that this is your mission. This is the Christian life. This is where we succeed or fail as the church. It's, it's not in kind of the numbers that we gather, the budgets that we have, the programs that we run, that we succeed or fail by whether or not we make disciples of Jesus. Now, we're often tempted to look for the latest strategy or a program in a box that, that some megachurch has, has put together, a parachurch organization, that's going to help us kind of address the challenges of the time or reach our neighbors. And, and there's nothing wrong with those programs and kind of seeing what they're doing, but it might be possible that we don't necessarily need a new program, but, but something else. Like there's never been a time in all of church history where we've had more tools and more programs at our disposal. And yet, at the same time, the church isn't seeing a lot of growth as a result of them. And I'm talking like broad church, the church globally. That the churches aren't seeing a lot of fruit because of these things. And so the time we're living in doesn't just require more relevancy. It demands resiliency. In other words, what I'm saying is we need courage for this time. And so what does courage look like in our day? And just like the first service, I'm so thankful that you're asking that question because that's exactly where my notes are going to go for the next little while. Just, it's, I love when God does that. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 17. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. And so what we could say is this. Peter is saying, you know what? Courage looks like holiness. And holiness happens when we, we care more about what God our Father thinks of us than what we do with what the, the surrounding culture thinks of us. Holiness happens when the the word of God, his commands carries more weight in our lives than the word of our culture and and what our culture tells us, you know what, here's what's good, here's what's true, here's what's important. And because of that, it, it means that when it comes to certain ethical matters, we might have to kind of refuse to be swayed on these things when the world is constantly changing its mind on those things. And courage means that we're gonna look different and distinct it means that we, live to li- we strive to live in a way that's righteous and we don't live, deal with people in ways that are dishonest or underhanded. That if, if we're scorned, if we're disciplined, if we're demoted, if we're let go from our job, it needs to be in spite of the way we live, not because of it. We, we could say it this way. People might hate us because we follow Jesus, but people must never hate Jesus because of us. So we must live lives that challenge any allegations that our beliefs lead us to be mean-spirited, hostile towards people, or dangerous. The next thing we could say is courage looks like commitment. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. And so what commitment means is that we're going to have to be willing to invest our time, our energy, our money, our resources, our gifts, our mind, our passion, all of that in the name of serving God. 
And courage means that we're going to have to be prepared to take the risk of loving one another. And so it could mean that you need to speak the truths of God's word to somebody who needs to be encouraged by the hope that it brings. But at the same time, commitment looks like this. If we're truly committed to one another, if we actually love one another, like scripture talks about it, sometimes we have to press people with the, the truth of God's word and the implications it brings. And that's, that's a less fun one, but it's one of the ways that we're commanded. But we're not just told to be committed to those who, who are in our own church. Scripture tells us, you know, we are to, to interact with our neighbors, our communities, our cities. And so courageous commitment, it changes the way that we engage with the world around us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, Peter says this, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, like, let's, let's just kind of be honest for, for some of us who, I don't, I don't know your political persuasion, but it can be hard to honor the emperor in 2023 when we don't necessarily agree with everything that our emperor um, believes or does. And when I'm saying emperor, I mean our, our government. It can be difficult to honor the emperor when it sometimes it kind of seems like the emperor is making some moves that's intentionally going to make life for those who call Christ Lord a little bit more uncomfortable, a little bit more difficult. But First Peter, when he writes this, it's not like things are great for Christians. He writes this in a culture in which the emperor is actually like openly out to get the Christians, trying to persecute them. And so those early Christians, they're not going, you know what? Maybe we'll be able to see another emperor come along in a few years and, and he'll agree with our political persuasion. He'll have our, I mean, in, in four years or less, another election's coming up, so maybe it will be our guy this time. Like the early Christians, their hope was not in politics or anything like that. They looked to the true king, Jesus, and the hope that he would bring and that he provides when he would bring his kingdom into completion. Like Stephen McAlpine, he writes, for the Christian, joy in the present is always future-focused. And so those early Christians, we talked about this two weeks ago, they knew the story that they lived in, and we know the story that we live in. We know that God has already told us the ending, we know how it ends, and so we get to live towards that ending courageously and graciously. Now the third thing is courage looks like sharing our hope. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it's written, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, again, for, for a lot of us, here's been our strategy when it comes to sharing the hope that we have. We try and go like, you know what? I'll present Christianity as a sensible option amongst the other worldviews or beliefs that are offered by the world. And the hope is that if, if we present Christianity in such a way that we show people, you know what, our beliefs and our values, they're not so different from yours, um, that maybe they'll, they'll kind of come to our side. Maybe we'll convince them to accept Jesus. In other words, we're trying to go, we're not total weirdos. Like, we, we have some similarities, so you, sh you should become a Christian. That's kind of been the strategy Look at the world 
And you see that there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of hurting, lost, and confused people. And they've been chewed up by this world. And if you really look at it, they're looking for something different, something more. And we're going to encounter people in our day-to-day lives who've been wounded and broken. And what can often happen, though, is that we, we isolate ourselves as Christians into our Christian bubbles, and we don't interact with, with these people. And we get this kind of rose-colored lenses or glasses that we look at the world through, and we forget how broken and messed up the world really is. That there are people who were caught in addiction and abusive relationships. That there are plenty of stories of, of brokenness and pain right here in our own community. And so why I'm saying this is instead of trying to convince everybody around us, you know what, we're not so different from you. Maybe we need to show why Jesus is the central reason for our convictions and our hope. Like when you get down to it, when when people are looking for something different, something more, they're not looking for an echo of the culture. And this is where a lot of mainline churches have gone wrong. They're like, let's just do what the culture wants and, and then they'll come. No, those churches are dying and shrinking because people don't want what the culture offers. They want something different. They want something more, an alternative. Like people are starving for meaning, purpose, and loving community. And so here's what the church gets to be. We get to be a counterculture. We get to be a beautiful resistance. We get to be an alternative society, a group that lives on the margins in a beautifully compelling way. Tim Keller, he he says that a combination of love yet deep difference because of our values, it's going to make us look weird. But at the same time, it's going to be attractive in the eyes of our neighbors. John Mark Comer, he puts it this way, that we are to be a prophetic signpost to kingdom life in a culture of death. Now, I know when it comes to sharing the reason for our hope, we, we kind of go like, I don't know. It's going, to be, it's going to be weird because, you know what, people aren't really open to, to the spiritual right now. But I don't think that's true. I think people are curious about spirituality and eternity. Like, just just. See what kind of movies are in the theater. See the kind of books that are being put out and, and the shows that are there. And a lot of them, they will have elements of the supernatural, of, of the spiritual, of the eternal in them. And, and I think it's because people are going, could there be something more? And deep down, like guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, they would say, you actually crave those things. You like those stories because you want it to be true. And that those stories, fairy tales and all of that, they, they echo reality, whether we realize it or not. And so people, yeah, they might have doubts. They might have some reservations about the things that we, we believe. But people are curious, and they want to know if there's something more. And so as Christians, our, our job is not to kind of fit in with the culture, but to show that our hope is not in winning a culture war that we've already lost. Our goal is not to make the culture Christian. Our hope is in the one who's defeated our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and who has given us his victory. So that's why in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have to anybody who asks. And again, we tend to complicate what that's going to look like. We, we go like, it's, it's going to be hard. I don't think I can do it. But it doesn't need to be difficult. It doesn't need to be overly awkward or, 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 or weird or complicated. We don't have to say everything all at once, like here's, here's all Christian theology in five minutes. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be able to answer everybody's question. What you need to be able to do, though, is start somewhere. But that's going to take courage. 
And so Christian courage, it's not changed in 2,000 years. It still looks like holiness and integrity in your life. It looks like commitment to one another, but also to those who surround us. And it also looks like sharing the reason for our hope. Now, there's, there's one final way that I want to encourage you to show hospitality. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the author of Hebrews writes, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. And so courage, it looks like hospitality. Now, as soon as I say that word hospitality, something comes into your mind, and it could be something different for a lot of us. Like maybe you're going like, you, you, you think Joanna Gaines, or maybe if you're a bit older, you're like Martha Stewart. Um, maybe you're going, it's Thanksgiving weekend. This is where hospitality really comes into play. And so like, I'm going to have a beautiful centerpiece. The house is going to be clean. Everything's going to be in the right place. I'm going to welcome guests in, and that's hospitality. And, and there's truth, that, that, that is hospitality, but biblical hospitality is, is much more than that. Biblical hospitality is about how we live our lives. It's about sharing your life and your home with those who might believe differently than you do. It's about how you share your life and your home with those who kind of fall outside of your normal social circles. Like the Bible encourages us, you know what, open up your lives Open up your homes and show kindness to those who might believe differently than you do. Like one of the things we do as a church is we help support missionaries um, around the world and we'll help send them out to kind of unreached people groups. And an unreached people group, if you're going, what's that? It's just a group of people that maybe have never heard the gospel before. And so we think this is an important thing that we should do as the church and so we do that. But when we send out missionaries to different parts of the world, to these unreached people groups, we don't expect that as soon as that missionary kind of lands in the area and puts boots on the ground, that that people who've never heard the gospel before is going to immediately embrace Christian values. Like, it, it takes time. Like, the, the missionary first has to kind of understand the culture and demonstrate God's love. They have to show God's goodness. They have to build relationships. They have to learn the language. They have to invest in individuals and leaders. And so, what we often understand is like it's going to take time. The missionary is probably going to be looked at with suspicion, um, misunderstood, probably maybe even hated. There could be a threat to their lives. And what I think we should expect is the same thing in our culture. Like as the church, we've talked about this throughout the series. We, there was a time where it was like everybody agreed with us. We thought the same way. We did the same things, had the same values and principles. And we could say, yeah, the church had the home field advantage but that is gone, that we are now missionaries to the culture. And what we've, we've been guilty of kind of in, in recent years is that when people would act like unbelievers, what we've done is we've attacked people for being precisely who they are apart from Christ. And so we need as the church to stop acting so surprised when, when those who don't share our beliefs and values would act hostile towards us, when they would disagree with us, like Jesus tells us in his word, that's going to happen. He, he basically promises it. And so as the church, we must never attack the people that we've been called to rescue. And I know the temptation in our day and age is like, let's argue them into it. Let's convince them with words. And that, that does play its, have a role in all of this. But one of the things that kind of happens, you see this on social media, is that when we just kind of use our words, um, arguments just happen. And you start kind of butting heads, and it tends to put up walls. 
It doesn't kind of bring people to your side. And so what I'm saying is our impact in in hospitality is not just in the words that we use, but it's in the way that we talk to people. It's in the way that we treat them. Somebody put it this way, good theology, it doesn't compensate for a hateful heart. And maybe, maybe you've been a Christian for years. Maybe you grew up in the church, and that, that's, a, that's a good thing. But what can often happen is we, we forget what we were before Christ. We, we kind of think, like, God and I, we've always, we've always been cool. But that's not the reality. Scripture says you were once his enemy, that you were hostile towards God, that you were separated by your sin. Like that, 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 that you haven't always been a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You haven't always been having a place in his home. But the gospel comes along and says, but God sent his son and he died on the cross for your sin. And because of that, you can be invited into God's family and have a place in his home. In other words, God has been hospitable towards us. And as his child, you were commanded to be like your father that you were to follow his example. And so hospitality should be part of the Christian life. Now, just kind of showing hospitality to the world around you is not going to change how the world perceives Christianity overnight. But what it might do is, is change some people's lives. And it might surprise people, and it might open up the door to have a conversation about Jesus Christ, to, to talk about the reason for the hope that you have. And so I just want to give you a few practical ways that you can show hospitality in this time. The first one is value people. Like we live in a time when everybody has hundreds, if not thousands of friends and acquaintances in person and online, but at the same time, not a lot of people are truly known and people want to be known. And so learn people's names, ask them open-ended questions, invite them to share about um, their lives and their passions. And when we take an interest in people, it goes along way. And so we need to decide that as we interact with people who might believe differently than what we believe, that we're never going to treat that person as somehow worse than ourselves or any other person. We should welcome the outsider. That in every sphere of life, at work, school, there are those who who struggle to belong or participate. Maybe they're just kind of new and so they don't have any relationships yet. Maybe there's something that's going on in their life that just kind of sets them apart and makes them look a little bit different. And you know somebody who fits that description in kind of the places that you frequent. And our tendency is like, you know what, let's avoid these people because they, they think differently than we do or maybe they act differently than we do. But we have to remember that these are the very people that Jesus Christ moved towards. That, that kind of defined Jesus' ministry. That he, he'll eat at the table nobody else will eat at. He moves towards the people who are on the outskirts. And so that's, that's a great way to show hospitality in this time. Invite people to your table. Like if, you, if you've read through the Gospels or as you kind of go through them at some point, like pay attention to how many significant moments take place around meals. Like a sinful woman, she finds forgiveness. A Pharisee is corrected. Zacchaeus becomes generous. A woman anoints Jesus for burial. The Lord's Supper is instituted. A mission to change the world is given. And so what, what you know, and like you've probably experienced this, is that something powerful happens when you sit down to have a meal with another person. You begin to share about your life, your memories, your beliefs, your hopes, your fears. 
Dividing walls, for some reason, they start to come down when you sit around a table with another person. But I'm not saying simply invite your friends, but invite your coworkers to lunch. Invite your neighbors over for dinner because meals, they'll change lives and so take advantage of them. Like think about even, even Jesus with, with Matthew, like Matthew the tax collector and nobody wants to be around Matthew but Jesus calls him to be his disciple and immediately Jesus goes to his home and he sits down at a table with tax collectors and sinners and it brings accusation towards him. But biblical hospitality, it means welcoming those who are not like us or whose sinfulness displays itself in different ways than ours does. And so as, as Christians, we need to be intentional in this. We need to make the conscious choice to engage with people of different political, ethnic, sexual, and economic backgrounds. Because if we're going, no, I won't share a table with those people. I won't, I won't share my life with people like that. You're not going to have any opportunities to share the reason for the hope that is in you. A few years ago, um, you might remember these commercials, but the Mormon church put out uh, some uh, ads, and it was this national media campaign. And what it was is like, it was, it was just uh, shots of some normal looking person going about their daily life. But then at the end, it would kind of have them facing the camera and they go like, my name is so-and-so and I'm a Mormon. And I think their goal was kind of go like, we, we Mormons, we can be normal, we can be cool, um, we, we can belong, like y- you could be one of us too if you want. And I don't know how successful that campaign was, whether it worked to bring a lot of people to Mormonism or not. But here's the thing, when, when you look in Scripture and the way God prescribes how we go about doing these things, his, his method is never kind of like this national um, media campaign. It's never like one gifted guy who's going to reach the masses. It's easy for us to think like in this time where things are challenging, what we need is like a big name. We need a celebrity and they're going to kind of really convince a lot of people to become a Christian. So like we think back to the days of like Martin Luther, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, like these guys, they, they could reach the masses and they did reach quite a few people, but they didn't reach everyone. And the reality is the greatest potential for reaching the lost is not a celebrity leader but it's millions of less known everyday believers showing courage where God has them. Like for a while, we as the church, we were able to make these big, impressive statements from seats of power, but we no longer possess many of those seats. And God is though calling us as individuals to make small countercultural statements to those who are around us. God is calling you to build relationships with people who might not think the way you do or do the things you do. And it takes courage to believe that this is truly how God is going to change lives, is through those simple things. And it requires commitment because it's each individual believer living on mission, embracing their their identity as a disciple. Like David Kinnaman, he writes, disciples cannot be mass-produced. Disciples are handmade one relationship at a time. Now I know, like, again, for some of us, if, if, if you haven't been in the church or, you, like, you're kind of exploring Christianity, this, this might land a bit differently. But for some of us, if you've grown up in the church and you've been a part of the church, you, you kind of t- know what I'm talking about when we're saying it's getting a little bit more awkward, a little bit more uncomfortable for us as Christians. And we might look at this time and go, like, it's, uh, what's going on, God? But God has not been caught by surprise. 
And in his sovereign wisdom, God has given us this moment that we are here to navigate his church through this challenging time, that it's our calling, our privilege, and our responsibility. And the reality is that the, the church's faithfulness to our mission to make disciples, that depends on how we as individual disciples decide to respond to this time. And the current level of kind of opposition from culture, that's new for a lot of us. We've never experienced it. But the church, it has been here before. That, that it thrived in that time. It didn't lose its identity, but it actually discovered its identity. At Christianity, it was born in a secular empire. And it really kind of begins with 120 scared people in a room. But then God sent the Holy Spirit to empower them to live faithfully, joyfully, and courageously in their time. And through them, God changed the world. And I mean, you can look at history and go, man, the, the, the church accomplished something that a lot of people would never think would be possible. We tend to put that in the past and go, yeah, but that was then. God has given the church the same spirit. And God is waiting to change people's worlds through you and die. And he's wired you with specific gifts. He's placed you where you are in order to give you opportunities to share the reason for the hope that is in your life. And so as we kind of land this series, my hope is, though, that through it, you've gained a big view of our God. Our God whose riches, knowledge, and wisdom are beyond measure. Our God who's already written the end of the story. And because of that, we can live with certainty that one day we're going to find that the peace and the rest that we, we long for, we ache for. But that's not something that we have to go to war for as Christians. Because Jesus said, I'm preparing those for you. But right now, we have the opportunity to live as that society on the margins, pointing to God's kingdom. And we can offer something that's vastly different than anything that this world could ever offer. Something compellingly beautiful. Jesus and so we can have courage in this time, church, because Jesus has said, I am with you always to the end of the age.